Hello and welcome to At Home with the Lalas, the podcast where Lara Fraser and myself, Lara Podelska, check in with people all around the world and find out how they're coping during COVID-19 time. Yes, and today Boris Johnson actually made a huge announcement. He said that as of July 4th, some normality can come back to the UK citizens' lives. And that means that certain shops are going to open, certain services can resume. Mm. The two-meter rule is going down to one meter, meaning that you can go over to your neighbor's friends or family member's house. And on top of that, parts of the hospitality industry are going to resume, which a lot of people are getting really, really excited about, let's yeah. be honest. So to give everyone a little bit of context that isn't in the UK, we have effectively been in lockdown. We have not been allowed to leave our houses really. Well, recently we are. but Yeah, only for exercise for purposes exercise. and going to the grocery store. Yeah. Very basic things. Very basic things. And you and I have stuck with this because I think we really didn't have a choice and we mm. wanted to we want to see our family again and yeah. it's been very very interesting checking in with so many people and finding out how different their lives have been affected by this horrific disease really i think also what we were discussing as well when you are not working in the front line mm. and in any of those services whether it be for the nhs or the postal service essential or, jobs essential right? yeah. jobs you have this idea of lockdown as being bored and stuck in your house and even though you hear things on the news, even though you hear these huge numbers and stuff... It doesn't seem real, does it? Doesn't it doesn't seem real. And also, there's a weird discourse that we shouldn't trust... Not a weird discourse. No, I agree. So there is a discourse yeah. that we shouldn't trust the news. So when you hear personal accounts, it's very different. I so agree. You know, I... And, and exactly what you said about the news, actually, because there's been so much information mm. and so much conflicting information that I just thought for us, the best option is to just stay home until this yeah. calms down. And I'm, I'm glad we took that decision. And in the end, what has come out is is that this is far greater than I think any of us could have imagined especially in the uk mm. we are at i think over forty thousand deaths yeah, I which forty five thousand. the number yeah, is constantly, they're changing. constantly change as well yeah. which which is also something i find really confusing it's also don't you feel like it's incredibly unfathomable how many people have lost loved ones how many mm. people have lost their jobs how many people have not yeah. been able to bury their loved ones i'm not sure i feel like celebrating on the fourth of july i feel like yeah. maybe easing into something obviously supporting the hospitality industry which you and I both also work in but yeah. um, mostly really supporting everybody who's been on the front line still I think I think it's so multi-layered the emotional um, surroundings about celebrating July 4th because on the one hand, our economy so desperately needs us and so many people have lost their livelihoods that any any glimmer of hope is something that they would like to celebrate on the other hand like you said we're still in uncharted territories this could really bring about a second spike in covid and lord knows what we'll do then absolutely i think for me over the last few weeks doing this podcast and interviewing people from Mexico, Rose in Mexico, mm. to literally all around the world, to mm. Los Angeles, back to London. It's been 
it's given us a bit of a glimpse on the struggles and successes everyone has had or how they dealt with it, if you will. Yeah. And when I mean successes, I mean surviving and not getting infected and not getting ill and not being being mm. hospitalized, essentially. So on this note, I wanted to say I feel very, very fortunate for everyone that has come on and a big thank you to them. And at the same time, we have a wonderful guest today. We have probably just the most inspiring, brave, great friend that I can imagine. We've got Sarah Molindwa on the show today. Sarah Molindwa has recently, well, at the beginning of COVID-19, gone back into nursing at a hospital. And just a bit of background on Sarah. You might know her from the incredibly successful show and educational show, actually, called The Sex Clinic. She's also a fashion stylist, presenter, radio host. So she has all of these things going on. But she made the conscious choice to say, actually, I have a skill set that I can help people with. And I'm going to risk my life by going back into the NHS into a hospital with loads of cases of COVID and from the very beginning helped as one of our essential workers. And how brave is that to leave your family behind and not be able to see them? And also, you know, the fashion industry, all of that, it's a bit of a fickle world. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun and all that, but it's glamorous, it's glamorous and mm. she does work in the industry. It, actually very successfully so. She worked for 1883 Magazine and mm. she worked as a stylist on thousands of shoots and videos and she's had all that success and as a presenter and then she decided to put on her PPE, go on the front line, live in a hotel which we shall, she will tell you all about and fight this disease. And I found her interview incredibly moving and I, I hope that you all are as inspired as I was by yeah. her own words. So I think there's nothing left to do but let her talk. Completely agree. Here's Sarah Melindwa. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It's so good to see you. So good to see you guys in this virtual world. I've not seen you girls in ages, so I'm, I'll settle for the, the, the video chat. This is great. So thank you for having me. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to start at the very beginning, actually, and ask you, where were you born? And how did you end up being so incredibly brave and work on the front line fighting this virus? Yeah, no problem. Um, so we're going way back now. So I was born in Uganda, which is in East Africa, and my parents immigrated here in the 80s. So I came when I was super young. Um, and so I grew up in southeast London, uh, in somewhere a little place called East Dulwich, and um, I've lived on and off in south, you know, south of the river, so uh, sort of most of my life. I started out career-wise. I started out as a nurse. Um, I went to university at 17, so I graduated a, a year earlier than I was supposed to, and I qualified as a nurse when I was 20. I'm now in my 30s, to put it into perspective. Um, and I pursued a career as a nurse, and I worked in acute medicine for five years in the NHS. And then about five years into my career as a nurse, I decided that 
I wanted to specialize um, as a nurse. And so I decided to specialize in sexual health and HIV, uh, which I've been doing for the past nine, almost 10 years now. And in the middle of sort of specializing in sexual health, I also decided to make a career move. So as much as I love being a nurse, I also had this other side of me that was more creative. And I always um, wanted a career in the fashion industry but you know being a being a young girl from a working class background I think a career in fashion always seemed like super big and this was when I was in my sort of early to mid 20s where there was no Instagram no Twitter no social media like it wasn't a thing that it was now and so when sort of Twitter and Instagram became a thing um about say eight years ago I thought you know what I can probably actually do it without having to depend on like an internship at a magazine or having to depend on like knowing somebody in the fashion industry and so I just started doing some like test shoots um, as a stylist so I went into the fashion industry as a stylist and I sort of built my profile organically sort of from the ground up um, through networking through working with um, up-and-coming photographers and models and makeup artists and um, eventually just ended up building my profile through that and then I got my foot in the fashion industry uh, that kind of fell into doing radio so I did a fashion related show for about four years and that's how I sort of got led into being a presenter so I started out in radio um, and through radio I somehow fell into TV um, before I went into TV I was working as a fashion editor as well which I sort of gave up the role um, almost a year ago now uh, just because I, I was having loads of things going on. But I, I always wanted to be a fashion editor, and so I sort of ticked that off the list. So once I'd done that, um, I sort of continued with sort of my TV stuff that I focus a little bit more about. And within TV, it's more from my uh, career as a nurse. And so I do a show called The Sex Clinic for Channel 4. Um, we're in our second season, and we should be gearing up to film our third series soon. And it's about sex and relationships, and it sort of draws from my nursing qualifications as a sexual health nurse um, and it's about sort of encouraging young people to talk openly about sex relationships body issues everything to do with sort of you know that field of things and so um, what I do now at the moment is I still work within the fashion industry I work as a freelance stylist but I work part-time as a nurse so I do two clinics a week um, in a sexual health clinic and that sort of keeps up my um, my nursing profession so that I don't lose that because I'll never want to lose that uh, and so I still practice that because I do the show as well and so that means I have to you know keep up my my practice as a, as a sexual health specialist so I do that and I do sort of freelance styling work I do presenting I do the odd radio bits and uh, bits and bobs here and there um, I'm hopefully starting a show soon on talk radio um so kind of getting that done but the last few months have been a little bit crazy i've gone back into um into clinical nursing so i went back to the hospitals uh during the pandemic uh and i've just it's been i think i think it's my third week now since i came back from the hospital so i was there for i think two to three months sort of working on the front line I've not worked in the hospital in a very long time so um just coming back from that has been a little bit intense so I wanted to ask a question on that because you have actually gone back into the hospital system there's a huge pandemic going on and I'm sure the pressure is very high firstly I want to know what hospital you're at and some of the things that you'd like to relate to the public about your experience on the front line yeah, so I was working, so at the time of this recording, um, we've sort of gone past the peak of the virus, and so we're sort of at the phase where 
we are the lockdown is being lifted and sort of life is going back a little bit you know back to normality a little bit we're still obviously the social distancing um in place and you know people wearing face masks so i've been out of the hospital for three weeks now and during the pandemic because i know there was a lot of you know it's like when something like this happens on a global scale it's just there's a lot of information overload and there was a lot of people saying you know this thing is not real this is all you know all these conspiracy theories and all these things but um obviously I was in the front line I was looking after COVID patients and I remember my very first day now bear in mind I had left the hospitals um eight nine almost ten years ago I think and um I've not been in a hospital environment for that length of time and so going back for me was quite daunting I thought you know, because sexual health is very, very different to clinical, actual nursing, you know, looking after sick people, um, which I did for five years, but I'd been out of it for so long. So I was really like nervous without remember everything. Obviously, I had all the training to sort of um, uh, refresh myself and get back into it. But going back to the front line, it was completely different to what I remember. Of course, the circumstances were exceptional. Um, and literally on a daily basis, you're having to call family, people's families and tell them that, you know, their relative has been diagnosed and somebody's passed away and, uh, you know, people can't come in and see their relatives. And so the one thing that I want um, your listeners to know and to um, acknowledge is that the virus is very real. And even though things may feel like they are getting back to normal, which is great, we're still not 100% out of the woodworks because there is no vaccine at the moment. Um, there's great news in that there's a treatment that's been um, discovered for it, potentially. It's called dexamethasone. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a treatment that they've found that it can potentially treat um, coronavirus. So I think this all came out about a week or two ago in the press. Um, so, but at the same time, it's still very new. And so it's not really be tr been trialed. So what I would say to people is to um, acknowledge that the virus is still very much real and to maintain social distancing, to still only go out if you absolutely have to, meet up in small groups, keep the distance, you know, wear your face mask, continue hand washing techniques because, you know, we've seen 50,000 plus people in the UK have lost their lives to coronavirus, which is a, a huge number in a short space of time. So the virus is still very real and it's still very much present in the community. So we need to still be as as vigilant as we were before and not not sort of relax on the uh, on the um, going out aspect and you know going back to as it was before. Sarah, thank you so much for this. I saw on your Instagram that you actually didn't stay at home whilst you were on the front line working at the hospital. Can you let us know where you stayed? Yeah, so um, because I live with, with others, um, what happened was, um, so, so the, the hospital where I practiced, actually it's where I did all my training, it's the only hospital I've actually, it's the only trust I've ever sort of worked for. I did all my training there 14 years ago, um, so that's the hospital that I'm, that I'm used to, that I know um, quite well. And so... Uh, it's in Chelsea, so it's called Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, um, and it's not far from Chelsea Football Club. And so the owner of Chelsea Football Club, they so kindly and graciously let us have their hotel for the for the length of time during the pandemic. Um, and that was for staff who either lived with other people and didn't want to expose those people to the virus, or who lived too far um, and couldn't sort of commute in for the shifts. And so they they offered the hotel to us. And so I was I checked in for. Yeah, I think for the whole time, for the whole duration I was there, which was a couple of months, I was sort of staying on my own. Um, it was just only like a five, six minute walk to the hospital. So that was really handy because it meant that I didn't have to go on public transport. And obviously looking after COVID patients, having to then go on public transport and potentially spread the virus. So it was really handy that I could stay in a hotel. But 
it was, as you can imagine, very segregating. You know, I was literally just hotel home, you know, hotel uh, hospital back and forth for two months. So, I mean, the first couple of weeks were super hard because, of course, you know, you're literally on your own. You have no one to talk to. If you have a hard day at work, there's no one to sort of offload that to. And, um, and so that was tricky. But at the same time, it was nice to just have that headspace and just to focus on on the goal and the reason why I went. So I was just literally just focusing on my work. I was just taking up as many shifts that, I, that were, you know, as, as often as they needed me. I actually didn't mind working more than normal because otherwise I'd just be sitting in a hotel. So um, so it worked out in that way. Um, and I'm just so, so grateful that, that we had the facilities and just how the community pulls together during a time like this. And like, you know, all the hotels across London were offering their, um, the hotel hotels for free to the NHS staff which made such a huge difference I can't even explain because I wouldn't be able to do you know sort of work as much as I did if I didn't if I had to commute to Chelsea every day so that was amazing. Thanks Sarah. So what is a typical day like for you when you were working at Westminster Chelsea Hospital? So I mean I saw a lot uh, my typical day so I would start at 7.45 in the morning that would be the start of the shift um, and then would finish at about 8, 8.30 in the evening. So sort of looking at 12, 12 and a half, and a half hour shifts. Um, so you come in the morning, we do the handover. Um, and I was I was on a, on a ward that was, it was a mixed ward. So some patients were COVID positive and then some were negative. And it was different to how I remember being in the hospital because they had to obviously... Um, change the environment to cater for the virus and um, to keep the virus at bay and so you found that patients were literally in a room in just a, a, a white room with like a small window so you could literally just see them enough um, you had to wear full PPE with everything um, and the protocol for PPE was very like the way in which you put it on the way in which you take it off how you how and where you dispose of it was very um, everything was sort of down to a T in, in order to control the virus and so you're finding that for you know I'd say if I worked a 12 hour shift for about nine hours of that I was in full PPE and so um you know you spend your whole day and obviously it was really hot around that time as well so you know we're in the summer um so we hand over the patients and then you're allocated a set um number of patients so I'd have sometimes I have four patients sometimes I'd have six patients it really we just depend on staffing levels and how full um you know the the, the ward was and you know you do your ward rounds you do your drug rounds so I you know do all the drug rounds then then you know all the treatments it, I mean it's very complex so I won't bore you with all the te technical sort of bits to it um but with every patient it was what I found really difficult was the PPE because every time you step into the environment you have to put it on you have to dispose and then you have to do the same with each and every you know patient that you had and I don't, I don't know if you guys remember but there was like a massive thing Shortage. in the media about the shortage of PPE so when I started there were really like you know the masks that they were giving us initially you know the the, the normal masks that anyone can get the sort of surgical masks so initially we just had that and aprons and and, and we were like super uncomfortable because you know these masks they're not tailored to fit, you know they're just sort of every everyone can use it one size fits all type of thing and so the shortage was a bit of an issue initially but um luckily um you know we managed to get proper masks and stuff but 
you know, it's just that worry. It was, I wasn't even so much worried that I would get COVID. Um, I always, I sort of made peace with the reality of that, that that was always going to be a possibility, especially when you're looking after positive patients. But my worry was always that I'd get it and then pass it on to other people. And yeah. so, the PPE, yeah, and so the PPE was, um, you know, that was a bit of a of a worry for the first couple of weeks. But then eventually, um, yeah, they managed to sort that out and then it was fine. But yeah, in a day you'd see, even if, if, if it's either my patient or somebody else's patient, but, you know, several deaths on the ward. Um, I remember one patient, um, my first day, like I said, one patient passed away. And so when somebody passed away, you have to do something that they call the final right. So you sort of, you know, prepare the body, you wrap the body, um, you know, put tags on them and then get, get the body ready to be collected um, and taken to the mortuary and stuff like that. So doing that sort of on your first day back after almost a decade was was really tough and so you know and then having to go back to a hotel room on your own and not even have sort of that that extended support so that was you know that was quite challenging and I remember um one patient I think it was a few days later from following from that one um he was about to pass away he was an elder elder gentleman and we had his daughter downstairs and she was just hysterical and um because of the strict the the strictness of the guidelines and you know people not being allowed into hospital it was so heartbreaking but we just we just couldn't let this lady come in and say bye to her dad and for me you know as somebody who'd lost my dad I found that like for me that's something that I think would probably stay with me for a long time because you just put yourself in that person's shoes and how they must feel and just not even be able to like hold their hand and stuff and so what I would do with my patients like that is I would just get as much of my work done and then just sit down hold their hand and just like be there with them pass on messages from the phone from their relatives so that you know they have somebody there with them and just tell them how much they're loved and how much their family god i'm gonna go oh, it's very emotional but um but yeah yeah i'll say that was the toughest bit but but having said that as hard as it was sort of emotion and everything like that um it was also um it was just amazing to be in the environment and working alongside you know all the doctors and nurses the healthcare assistants the porters the pharmacists you know the volunteers and just everybody who makes you know the NHS you know work I was just so humbled to, to be um to be with everybody and obviously I hadn't been clinical in a long time so people were like super helpful everyone was like so supportive I got so much support I can't even you know say otherwise but I got so much support and just the community we had loads of food donations like people just couldn't do enough and I think that's what that's what got us through it because it was like we just knew that everybody was just there for us and then the claps every Thursday like things like that that was just so little and just you know you do it for a minute but it means so much to the people who are working front line so I think that's really what got us through the whole situation. I wanted to ask personally as I have someone so knowledgeable on the other side of this Skype call how much do we know around how long the virus can live on inanimate objects? And you also told this incredibly touching story of a girl who could not visit their father who had passed from coronavirus. I wanted to know how much do we know about how long the virus can live on someone that's no longer with us? Or are we just in the process of still figuring all of these things out? I think that there's still so much research going on about it and still trying to figure out. We know that there's a 14-day window period um, of when you become infected and when you might uh, become symptomatic. Um, we know that it's it, the thing about coronavirus is it's like any other flu virus. The only difference is that 
none of us have had it before therefore we've got zero immunity to it um and and i know initially and i think in some countries i think it was sweden they sort of adopted this um i mean correct me if i'm wrong i could be but i think it was sweden they they, they adopted the um the herd immunity uh, technique so that basically let let society carry on as normal the more people that get it the better and then the build an immunity so that's essentially what coronavirus is it's a flu-like virus but nobody ha nobody has immunity to it um i think i think if we're going to get a peak i think it would likely be in the winter months when people's immune systems are a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more suppressed and when we're more likely to get flus and colds and things like that so far you know lockdown has kind of been lifted um and people sort of out and about we're not seeing those numbers rising up like they used to which is great so we think we're, so we've definitely gone past the peak of the virus um we still know how but the good news is that we know we do know now how it is passed on so i think hand what we know by hand washing we know touching surfaces we know you know when you sneeze you know the particles that are passed on from you know saliva and everything like that that's how it was passed on hence why you need the face masks um so i think for people just knowing the basics of how it's passed on so just wash your hands whenever you go into a new environment wash your hands we know what it's like on public transport like you know we we all live in london you know getting on the tube and the buses um it's so easy you know just touch a handle you don't know how many people have touched that handle so just being aware of you know having um, hand sanitizer hand washing techniques um that's just basically the best way to to keep the virus at bay but i think there's still so much research and studies and there's things that, could, that are coming to mind now but i don't want to quote in case something new has come up that i've not you know had time to read up on um but the good news is that now we know how easily viruses are spread and we know what we can do for ourselves and for our immediate environment to um to help to stop the spread thanks so much sarah i just quickly wanted to go back to the time you spent at the hotel on your own now lara and i talk a lot about self-care is that something you were actually able to do in, in sort of the hotel and stuff to be fair do you know what i did i just completely pretty much let myself go <laughs> like, <laughs> i was like forget it like no one cares <laughs> I'm not going to see anyone and I sort of like when I went there I mean not to sound dramatic or anything but I kind of went in there like almost like I was going to war in a way like I was just like right this is it I'm just putting all my focus on this um th the thing is even when I was working I still had like um sort of brand collaborations to do like I had uh, uh, a makeup thing to do with um with Huda Beauty like so I did like a nice yeah. makeup tutorial so that was fun it was so fun I mean I, I was sat there in a face full of makeup and going absolutely nowhere <laughs> but it was so fun to do and like you said you know you know we used to like getting dressed up and making ourselves feel good and look good and stuff and so even just doing my makeup was just so nice and just remembering that I still got the skills yeah um so I did that for a uh, collaboration and then love magazine sent me like a lovely bag full of lots of beauty goodies and like hand sanitizers oh, and really practical yeah and actually I need to post it soon and like really practical things um that would help me sort of on the um you know while I was away um and then I've got I've got sent loads of beauty stuff so obviously wearing PPE for hours and on is not the best for your skin so I'm not I wasn't really getting that much natural light I was in the hospital all day and even when I was in the in the in the hotel like I just couldn't even bother to go out I just wanted to rest so I was finding that I wasn't getting enough sunlight and so that my skin started to break out so after about week three or four I was like right 
I need to start like a good skin regime going. So I would do face masks like two or three times a week. Yeah, I make sure I do t- my toner and just, yeah. And I needed it so much because of the PPE. I needed to make sure I took extra care of my skin, but also just made me feel better. And, you know, I'd wake up and like have a fresh face and also not wearing makeup as often as I would do normally was a sort of a good rest for my skin. So I sort of took the opportunity of where I didn't need to wear any makeup to just um, to just look after my skin and let it breathe a little bit and just look after it. So for me, that kind of helped me to like relax and unwind and like feel a little bit more of myself. So. So in terms of your own mental health and with regards to self-care and really also PTSD that you may be experiencing now and in the future, is there something you might be able to do for yourself? Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's something that I probably will be dealing with. I think that the problem with um, with like people who work in healthcare, doctors and nurses, I think you see so much like throughout your career, like you almost become almost like desensitized in a way, like but you, you but you don't become desensitized. You just learn to sort of compartmentalize it you sort of hide it away somewhere you you don't you don't actually it's not that you become desensitized but you just learn to not deal with something and I think with coronavirus and because I sort of um you know threw myself into an environment that I was used to you know 10 years ago but I hadn't been in in it for a long time it just hit home you know all the other experiences that I'd had before I'd left Mm -hmm. the hospital and then obviously with COVID and stuff and so one thing that I've come to acknowledge and I think it's great that we um, that we talk about it a little bit more is that after that aftercare and the after support because obviously now everything's kind of gone back to normal and you know everyone's like been so appreciative of NHS stuff which is amazing but I think there also needs to be um, it needs to be highlighted the support the psychological support that's needed after going through something like that because it's not just the patients that people were dealing with that they were looking after at home. I work with a lot of nurses and doctors who, you know, survived COVID themselves who were like super unwell with it, like it was super unwell. Um, I know a few who didn't actually make it through. So people dealing with like colleagues who had passed away, family members who had passed away, patients who passed away. And so it's, it's a lot. And, you know, you deal with it in a short space of time. Um, so I've not, I've not thought, I've not even had, it's crazy because obviously we've been in lockdown, but I've been, so busy like since I got back that I've not had time to sort of sit and breathe and of course straight off the back of COVID you know we went straight into the whole you know everything that happened recently and the you know the Black Lives Matter movement everything that's happened with that and so psychologically I just feel like I need to go away for like a good month yeah and just breathe for a little bit but um it's definitely something that I think that I actually want to highlight more as well um and uh and figure out how I can use my platform to um, to maybe come up with, if you girls have any idea, I don't know, just something, but I, I just feel like there needs to be some form of aftercare for people who have been on the front line. I was actually, I was actually having a conversation about this with a friend of mine who's a doctor as well in Australia, and she said all throughout, you know, um, healthcare professionals' careers, there is a lack of focus on the, on the mental health side of things. Right. Um, you know, that maybe that's something that programs should look into. Now that you've returned to your normal life, probably have some form of routine going on. Have you managed to put some thought in how you will adapt all your sectors of work, such as fashion styling and presenting to these new ways of living? 
to be honest, so everything sort of within fashion in terms of, so as you girls know, fashion week would have been earlier in June, the first week of June, mm. um, which is normally when we meet up and go out, which I'm very excited that we're going to do this season. But I remember sitting and I was like, oh, right now, you know, I could be at like, a really nice party or whatever. Um, so obviously fashion week has changed. Um, as you girls know, with fashion week, you can't really social distance at a, at a fashion show, can you? Um, and even like normal press events that I'd normally go through throughout the week, um, all of that is pretty much at a standstill until, you know, until further notice. And so what I'm finding now, actually, um, and, you know, I always I always believe that there's always something positive always comes from something negative. And I think for me, the positive that I find is that I've had time to actually just stop. And even though I was working in the hospital, normally my life is like 100 miles an hour. I'm either at a photo shoot, at an event, in clinic, uh, filming something. I'm always doing something throughout the week, um, like every single day, even on weekends. And so I, I managed to have the time to just stop and just to figure things out. And so within the fashion industry, I think, thing, and like, you know, as I said, with fashion weeks and, and even doing photo shoots, like, you know, when I was working as a freelance stylist, you know, we'd set up photo shoots and stuff like that. So all of that is sort of at a standstill. I think they might go back to normal gradually, but I'm finding that I'm working in different ways in terms of like, I'm doing a lot more writing um, in, in terms of like sort of the, from the health perspective. Um, I've just re very, very recently started working with a new manager. So she's like, um, you know, we're doing a lot, loads of different stuff um, sort of within TV and, and, um, and that, you know, from that side of things. And um, I'm sort of trying to get back into radio as well, pick up from, which I was trying to do before lockdown. So I'm trying to sort of pick that up again. So I'm finding that I'm probably working just about the same but in just completely different ways so I do miss the fashion you know the fashion element of things um but I'm finding that I'm focusing more on like the tv and the radio and my writing like you know I, I used to do a bit of writing here and there but I found that that's something that I'm sort of picking up a little bit more and so it's fun but I'm still doing like fashion collaborations and like trying to do like um you know collaborations with the handbag like, uh, there's a handbag brand that I've done a collaboration with recently um and so keeping my foot in the nerve in the in the fashion industry um and still doing all the other bits that I do um so just trying to which I've always done is try to like keep my foot in 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 a bit of everything to keep me because I'm passionate about all of them so I always figure what why can't I do everything that I love it's so interesting now I do want to talk about the show you're currently on and you're about to go into the next season for Channel 4's The Sex Clinic how did that all come about? Yeah, so the sex clinic, um, sex clinic, I got involved with it in 2017, I believe, when we filmed the pilot. A friend of mine, um, who I know sort of from the creative industry, she works in TV as a casting director, and she she wasn't working on the show, but she knew somebody who was working on the show, and she knew that I had um, sort of a background in presenting, and also knew that I happened to be a qualified nurse, and that I happened to specialise in sexual health, and so she was like, Sarah. I know somebody who's working on this show. I think you'd be perfect for it. And it was in the really super early stages of the development. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is never going to, like, who's going to be, who's going to go on national TV and air their dirty laundry? But, I mean, how wrong was I? But, um, yeah, so wrong. And then, um, so she put me in touch with her friend. And then, long story short, he came to meet me on one of the days that I was in clinic. Um, and he came down with all his leaflets about the show and just sort of told me a little bit. And then I did a Skype interview with him um, and he was, you know, quite happy with it. And then he uh, passed it on to the, the, produ the production team and then they invited me in uh, to their offices in Hammersmith to do like a proper, a proper like 
uh, casting for it. And then they said, they, they love the fact that I obviously was a nurse, so I was qualified to, to, to do the job, but then that I had the um, the presenting background, which was like a quite a unique combination to find. And so they, and so once they, um, once they cast me, they then started looking for um, the doctor and the health advisor to sort of make the full team. So the three of us, um, and then we filmed the pilot in 2017. Um, and that was for online. So it was just for, I think 4OD, is it? No, all four, all four, which is Channel 4's online content um, platform. And so they sort of put it out in like short episodes just to see how, you know, how people would take to it, if it was worth sort of making into a show. And then it was super successful. Um, you know, people, you know, it, it really resonated with young people. They loved it. And so they decided to commission it for like a proper TV series. And so we filmed series one um, for E4 in 2000. I think Jan, no, in 2018, we filmed that. Um, and that was like when we really like, okay, we're now in this fabulous show, we're on TV kind of thing. Um, and then series one, just like, just <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. till this day, I yeah. still have people from like Australia, Croatia, New Zealand, because now it's like being shown in these other countries. And, um, and like, I think you're never going to go wrong when you're talking about sex. It's something that everybody can relate to. Like, no matter what, where you come from, what race, like, everybody is just so relatable. And so it really, like, it got a lot of attention. Um, and it did really, really well. You know, the channel really happy with it. And so um, we filmed another series. So we got commissioned for series two, which is the one that's currently out. Um, so series two, we, it was aired in January of this year. Um, on E4 and then it's coming back on TV within the next couple of months so this time it's going to be on Channel 4 so they've upgraded it to the main channel um, so yeah which is great so it's going to be um, they, they've not got the confirmed date but it will be on within the next couple of months on Channel 4 um, and then normally we'll be getting ready so we normally film in July but because of everything it's likely to be pushed back a little bit um, a little bit forward to a little bit later in the year we'll probably film series three but so the sex clinic is um yeah no it's it's something that I, I've always said even before the show came about that it would be so interesting to do a show like this because even just in normal clinic I mean the sex clinic kind of touches on what it's like to be you know in sexual health but like rural clinic is even crazier like it's even crazier <laughs> but so to have a show that really reflects that and I think it really does it has a really good combination of like being really educational so it's super educational we, we really explain everything um in detail you you see everything you know with the with the people that come on it the contributors it's up to them whether they have the cameras down or up so you know they've got the option um and surprisingly a lot of them are like yeah it's fine and so which is good from an educational perspective because it's one thing talking about a symptom, but if you're watching a show and then you actually see it, okay, it might be a little bit like, oh my God, I, I don't want to see it. But for somebody who may be suffering from something like that, for them to physically see it on TV, not only does it normalize what they're going through, but then they can actually, you know, look at what something looks like and it can um, sort of help them with whatever they're going through. And so what I find is a lot of people get in touch and say thank you so much for discussing I don't know like endometriosis which we discussed about a couple of times that you know we've never really seen a lot of people touch on some of the subjects that we touch on on the sex clinic um so it's educational but it's also like super funny like 
the, mm. the characters that we get through the doors, they're just hilarious. And so it gives it that sort of fun, young approach, but still being quite serious um, and educational as well. So it's super fun to do. It's, it's, you know, we have so much fun making it. So fingers crossed when everything's back to normal, we'll get, we'll get a series three out to everybody again. Yeah. What is your hope for the rest of the year? Or really, what is your hope for the future? Yeah, I think it's been a heavy year to think that we're just in June and all the things that have happened this yeah. year. Like, it's, I think it, I think it started with the fires in Australia, and like, it's just every month is something, and it's just like, what more can we, you know, can we expect for the year? But I think if the coronavirus being sort of the biggest thing that's happened this year, I would say, and and then off the back of that, the whole Black Lives Matter movement. I think I hope that what we do learn from this and that what COVID teaches us is that we are all connected in some way. And what what we do as individuals has a knock on effect on other people, not just with the virus, but it just in everyday life, whether it comes to discrimination, um, generalization about certain people and certain group types, um, uh, you know, the feminism movement, the LGBT movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, all these different things that we're talking about that you think if you, you because you can easily say, oh, well, well, I'm not gay or I'm not black or I'm not a woman. Therefore, these things don't affect me. But what we've learned from coronavirus and from everything that's happening in the world now is that we are all connected. And until we see that, um, we'll just always be going around in circles and bumping heads. So I'm, ho- I'm, ho- I'm hoping that when we come out of this, we will have a greater appreciation um, for humankind, for each other, um, and to acknowledge and accept um, and realise that at the end of it, we are all human and this virus could have gotten any of us and has done. Um, and so when it's all said and done, we are human beings and we're all just trying to figure out this thing called life. So I'm hoping out of all of this, we'll have more kindness, we'll have more inclusivity, um, a lot more love, a lot more openness. There's a lot of uh, conversations that are being had now that pre, you know, 2019 and before, a lot of the conversations that we're having now on social media, on radio shows, on podcasts, you know, all this stuff, you know, we wouldn't be having these conversations. They'd sort of be shied away. So even the fact that we're talking about them, I think I'm hoping moving forward in the future that we normalise talking about other things that don't affect us um, because that's how you can help your fellow human beings. And that because things like racism, it, it can't be done by just the group that is affected by it. It takes, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a humanity issue. Um, and I think when we start to see things like that, that's when we can move forward and see actual systemic change. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was an incredibly informative, enlightening interview. And it, you were an absolute pleasure to talk to. Oh, oh girls. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, girls. I'm so happy to see you guys, even if it's on Skype. But it's, it's great to see you girls as always. So thank you so much for having me as well. Uh, we feel both. I think Laura and I are... A, pretty teary and very blessed that came on and and spoke to us today oh Uh, anytime anything for you girls thank you so much ladies thank you love you lots we love Love you you. okay take care Thank you so much, Sarah. That was an incredibly moving interview as it was so personal and it really resonated hearing your accounts of all the things that have happened. It's made me really teary. I, uh, 
it's it's made me really somber and um, feel very privileged that we were in a situation where we haven't witnessed it. Feel also very privileged that Sarah decided to speak to us and yeah. come on the show today and just be so open and letting mm. us in. I cannot imagine what she must have witnessed. Yeah, I think the thing that kind of touched me the most was hearing how when someone loses mm. a loved one, they are unable to go into the room with them and unable to mourn in all the ways that we take for granted. And that is just beyond devastating. It's beyond belief, isn't it? Yeah, it's beyond belief. It's just belief. not something you can fathom. Mm. Um, I just want to pledge my support to every NHS worker and to everything Sarah does and thank her for agreeing to come on and for being so brave and so strong and so inspiring. Thank you, Sarah. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, then please do subscribe. And if you fancy rating it, you can do that on any outlet.